0: Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Two
1: Guys Talking Podcast Network. Thank you. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. We continue our series during Mental Health Awareness Month discussing mental health issues facing athletes. Think that professional athletes have it all together and there aren't any pressures? How about if you make the Olympics for your sport? Everything will be great from there on out, right? It's easy to walk away, no pressures? Well, maybe not the case. How can an athlete still make an impact in their sport after the competition ends? Today on the podcast, we are joined by a former Olympic figure skater soon to have her doctorate in psychology. We'll talk to her about her athletic career and how she is now making her mark in the world of mental health of the athlete. I'm Dr. Mark Halsted, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Rachel Flatt is a doctoral candidate in clinical psychology program at UNC Chapel Hill. Her research primarily focuses on eating disorders in athletes and digital mental health tools. She is also a 2015 graduate from Stanford University with a degree in biology and a minor in psychology. In the world of athletics, she placed seventh in the 2010 Olympic Winter Games in ladies' figure skating and was the 2010 U.S. national champion and the 2008 world junior champion. She retired from competitive skating in 2014 and continues to play an active role in the sports community as an athlete representative for the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee's Nominating and Governance Committee, Mental Health Task Force, and Racial and Social Justice Council. She also serves on U.S. Figure Skating's Board of Directors and as a U.S. Figure Skating's Chair of the Athletes Advisory Committee. Welcome to the podcast, Rachel.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: I'm really looking forward to our discussion today. We crossed paths, although likely without running into each other at any point during the U.S. Olympic figure skating championships that were held here in St. Louis, my hometown, in 2006. I was one of the medical directors for that event. And unless you were one of the unfortunate athletes that year who came down with the rash of stomach flu we had towards the end of that event, I'm guessing we didn't see you in the medical suite, or at least I hope you weren't in the medical suite in the hotel. But you were there competing in the junior ladies event, and you actually placed second that year. But my goal today isn't necessarily to focus on your athletic accomplishments. I'd love to talk today about your experiences as a competitive athlete growing up in the world of figure skating and reaching the highest level as an Olympic athlete and the health struggles you may have had both physically and mentally, and then how those experiences shape your career goals today. And I'd love to touch on how you're using those experiences in your platform to hopefully make a positive change in the world of figure skating. So let's start with the injuries. When we were talking about things prior to this recording, you mentioned you had about six or seven concussions. And I think the world of figure skating is possibly a very overlooked sport when talking about concussions. I know as someone as a concussion specialist, this is not something we regularly talk about. It doesn't surprise me, though, with the skills and the hard ice, with any lack of type of protective headgear that concussions can happen. Can you talk a little bit about your experiences, first of all, with those? And and how much was that talked about ever in the world of figure skating just in general with you?
0: Yes. Like you said, I had a fair number of concussions. Most of them really resulted from me kind of doing silly things on the ice. <laughs> it honestly wasn't coming from the really intense skills. You know, if anything, it was like, oh, I'm trying to learn how to spin the other direction or I just caught an edge and, and tripped and fell and and hit my head. Actually, one of the worst concussions that I had, I was doing a routine to the music, but without any of like the hard technical skills, I was just doing kind of the choreography and like focusing on the artistry. And I went to, you know, just push back on an edge and I caught an edge and hit the back of my head and totally blacked out. Apparently, I tried to get up again, fell forward and hit the front side of my face. And it was such a weird experience kind of waking up with this dissociation, thinking I had heard someone else crying, but it was actually me who was crying. So that was like a very weird experience to to have. Fortunately, my coach and my mom were were there on the spot. And, you know, by the time I kind of came to, they were already there on the ice with me, just checking to make sure everything was okay. But, but yeah, I mean, I think skating is definitely one of the sports that's overlooked, because it isn't a contact sport. We're not, you know, bumping into other people. You know, instead, we are slipping around on very hard ice, like you said, without any headgear to kind of protect ourselves. And there's kind of this joke with a lot of skaters, especially female skaters. It's like, where do you put your bun placement, your hair placement to kind of protect your head just in case you end up falling and hitting your head. It was a wild experience for sure, kind of going through a number of concussions throughout my career. And I always wonder, you know, <laughs> what, what the long-term effects will be uh, on that. But at least for now, it doesn't seem to be having much of an impact. So I feel pretty grateful for that.
1: I'm fascinated about your comment about the bun placement. That is uh that just blows my mind a little bit there. I mean, I, to be honest, I I have not been in deep with the figure skating world so to speak. I mean, I I was involved with the figure skating championships and I've certainly seen plenty of figure skaters and synchro skaters in my office, but I I honestly I don't know as much about the sport and kind of the culture behind the sport as probably I I should, but But wow, that that just blows my mind away about the whole concept of the bun. I mean, I've heard of all sorts of things of athletes trying to do stuff different and and what's in that culture to try and help protect from certain injuries. But that's a that's a new one to me.
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel like that probably wasn't a really mainstream thing that was going on. But there were a couple of years where I remember we would constantly make jokes about that in the ring. At the time it was very normalized, it was really funny. But looking back, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe we were joking about that. <laughs> like, if anything, we'd want to really make sure we're doing a good job of protecting our heads and protecting our brains when we're practicing and learning some really difficult skills. But but yeah, I mean, many other sports and like many other athletes have said over the years, your injuries almost seem like a badge of honor. And the more injuries that you have, or you know as long as it doesn't really negatively impact your career in the long term, But I, you know, I feel like the more injuries that you have or like being able to compete through severe injuries is something that a lot of athletes used to take a lot of pride in. But now I think that conversation is finally shifting. And I think more folks understand that, no, we actually do want to be healthy when we're competing. We do want to feel really strong and at a hundred percent every time we step on the ice injuries are not something to be kind of like, flatted or, or really broadcasted or like badge of honor. Instead, it's something that you really want to take preventative steps against. So yeah, it's been good to see that, that perspective shift over time.
1: Yeah, that's a discussion I have in my office frequently with athletes, as far as the playing through pain or playing through injuries. And you're right; it, for a lot of people, it is a badge of honor. Just in general, you know, I, I did this and I did this, and and look what I was able to accomplish. But you know, I turn it back on them sometimes. I'm like, just imagine how much better you could have performed if you weren't hurt or you weren't in pain, and how much more enjoyable it may have been for you not suffering in pain that whole time. I, I mean, I know you know as a lifelong runner. When I run and I don't have pain, my runs are a lot more enjoyable than the runs that really hurt. And it's just an interesting concept and kind of mental way that we think about things as far as our sports.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I really wish that I had that perspective when I was competing because I was definitely one of those athletes that was injured all the time. I think, gosh, I I think about the last couple of years of my career and I had really severe tendinitis in both ankles and my feet, like to the point where I, at the time I was in college, and it was to the point where biking around campus and walking around campus was almost impossible because I was in so much pain. Eventually, I took a couple months off from skating just to try and regroup and, and recoup my ankles. And man, it just, yeah, that that was kind of the shifting point for me where I realized, this is not sustainable. I can't continue to do this. And I really need to take some time and make sure that I'm getting my body healthy, whether or not I decide to continue skating. But it just, the injury certainly got to a point where my perspective had to change if I was going to continue skating at all.
1: Sure. So, stress fractures, you were diagnosed with one just prior to your world championships. Tell us a little bit about that experience and, and mentally being diagnosed with an injury right before your competition is what effect that you had on you mentally. And I'm kind of curious just in what you had just told me about the constantly doing stuff, feeling like you were hurt all the time. I'm guessing this probably didn't shift much for you as far as your, your mental health, so to speak, but maybe it did.
0: For context, this, this was kind of an unusual year. This was back in 2011 and worlds were supposed to be in Tokyo. And this was worlds actually were supposed to occur the week following the uh, earthquake and the subsequent tsunami that had happened in Japan or just off the coast of Japan. So obviously, you know, kind of given, given everything that was happening at that point, the International Skating Union decided to... Put a pause on Worlds and they were trying to decide for, I don't know, maybe a span of a month whether or not they were even going to hold Worlds that spring or if they were going to just cancel it or if they were going to move it to like September. Worlds usually occurred like in March for a month, I was kind of in this holding pattern and, you know, I had expected based on like my periodization to be done in March and, you know, take some time off from skating and, you know, my my whole season had kind of been built around building up to the world championships. I wasn't expecting to like be in this holding pattern at my top level of training and competition for a month. Which ended up turning into two months, and so of course during that time, you know, I didn't take time off, and I overtrained. And the week before we went, I started having a little bit of pain in my right shin, which was like my main landing leg and picking leg. Doing physical therapy, it was totally fine at the time, and I was like, "This is this is really manageable pain. I'll be just fine. It's this is far less pain than I've endured in other events." And lo and behold, the day before we left, the pain became pretty unbearable. And so I went and got an x-ray and realized I had a stress fracture. And after discussing this with, you know, my team, it was really clear that like, I needed to go compete and there were some pressures as well to go compete for a variety of reasons because we really wanted to make sure the the US women got three spots back because they only had two that year and we didn't want to put like all that pressure on one person. Long story short, you know, I ended up competing. I was in extreme amounts of pain. I was being prescribed codeine just to get through the event. And so mentally I was like really not with it, even when I was competing. And, you know, I think there were a lot of decisions that were probably made around that that weren't ideal, but, you know, we were trying to make the best with what we had. Of course, after that event, I got a lot of flack for competing injured, which was shocking to me because it seemed like so many other athletes had competed injured and <laughs> I was like, okay, well, you know, I did, I did okay. It wasn't my best, but at the same time, you know, I was really hoping to medal that year things didn't work out and I spent the entire summer rehabbing and trying to get back into the swing of things. And I also was starting college that fall. So there were a lot of transitions happening in that period of time. But yeah, competing with a stress fracture was not great. I would not recommend it. But I I really that was one of the turning points for me where I realized I, I can't continue to put my success as an athlete above my health, because it's really not helping me in any way. And if anything, it's really coming at the cost of like my own confidence, my self worth and my ability to really put out the performances that I want to. So that was a tough go for sure.
1: You know, I think a lot of athletes can probably relate to your comments about having things postponed just with COVID this year and those that were able to compete around the country this year in, in whatever way, shape, or form that may have been of the pauses and starts and stops and how that just mentally affects you and and obviously physically affects you just in the standpoint of you're preparing for something and then that thing gets postponed temporarily. I'll be curious to see what comes out of the Summer Olympics this year of everybody who is trying to peak for last summer. And then this year, or having to go through that and trying to prepare all over again, and then, uh, yeah, I, I think it's going to be interesting. I I don't think it'll probably affect our winter Olympic sports so much, but but certainly, mm-hmm. boy, the summer Olympics, I'll be curious to see what happens this year.
0: Yeah, I you know, just talking with some folks, I was actually just back in Colorado Springs over the holidays. We went to the Olympic and Paralympic Museum, which was absolutely stunning. But we were talking with some athletes who were working there, who were trying to qualify for the games. And we were just talking about like the extreme physical and mental burnout that they're experiencing right now. And yeah, I just, I don't know how they're doing it, but athletes are some of the most resilient people I think you'll ever meet. And if there's anyone equipped to handle something like that, those are your folks. So I feel pretty strongly that a lot of, that we're still going to see some incredible performances in the summer games, but it's still, I mean, it's hard to know at what cost.
1: Yeah, I can't imagine the relief athletes will feel after they're done with this, after having to drag things on for this peak of their performance a whole extra year. Boy, you know, I was reading this story about you in Stanford Magazine and in the article you were quoted and I'm going to read directly from the article. So I, I was teased constantly about my weight and all that stuff. The running joke was Rachel fat instead of Rachel flat. She knew better than to pay attention to it, but sometimes curiosity went over and she'd scroll through YouTube to read what people wrote. This level of public scrutiny only piled on to the self-esteem and body image issues that any teenager might have. And it wasn't limited to anonymous commenters. I constantly receive feedback from judges and coaches about needing to lose weight and to tone up, Flat says. It was very frustrating for me to deal with that, but fortunately, it never progressed beyond that. Now, we know that the concerns of eating disorder in aesthetic sports and how devastating these comments can be to any female, especially at a point in life where they've just been through a bunch of body changes, going through puberty... I did a podcast episode last year with Dr. Dan Benardot, who is a sports nutritionist, and he told a story about a coach who thought it would be better for a figure skater to lose 10 pounds. And he went through a very elegant and thoughtful reasoning to the coach that that wasn't a good idea and what they would think of if they actually added 10 pounds of muscle to the skater and their performance possibilities instead of the concept of this person needs to lose 10 pounds. Uh, And I thought it was great hearing about his advocating for healthy eating So who were your supports when you were seeing these social media posts and these ongoing voices in your head from coaches and judges that kept you from going down the route of disordered eating?
0: Yeah, that's a complex answer (laughs) because I feel like There were some folks, you know, when I was competing, who would initially frame themselves as really staunch supporters of me. And I think this happens to a lot of athletes. Like when you start gaining notoriety, there are a lot of people who want to kind of be near you and be part of that success story, but at the end of the day are really in it Only for themselves. And so sometimes it's hard to suss that out, especially as a teenager when you're trying to figure out, you know, like what good and healthy friendships look like, let alone what good professional relationships look like. For me, I think at the end of the day, it really just came down to like my parents. My parents were really strong advocates and like fierce protectors of me. They both had just such a good, perspective on this that i think sometimes when you're parenting an athlete not that i have experience in this <laughs> since i'm not a parent myself but i think they they were able to really take a step back and say okay we are going to prioritize like rachel as a human and her development as a person first before her success as an athlete they really wanted to make sure that i was eating like balanced regular meals um, working with folks like Dan, I actually worked with Dan for a couple of years, and he was fantastic and really changing how I thought about nutrition and and at the time, you know, I think I was mostly focused on just eating like three meals a day and supplementing with snacks as needed. But I wasn't really kind of tracking it with, with or in relation to how many calories I was burning during a training session and the intensity of the training session. So I wasn't quite coordinating, you know, my nutrition with the training volume and intensity. And that was something that really changed the game for me and in terms of my, my energy and my performances. So that was certainly something that I was able to learn at that point time, really my parents and a few select folks who were kind of in that that circle of, kind of nutrition and psychology, those were really the folks who I always felt like had my back. And I would also mention like my last two coaches that I worked with out at Stanford, Because they, I think they both realized I was at a point in my career where I was no longer necessarily at my peak. I went to the Olympics during my senior year of high school, took a gap year, and then started college and retired during my junior year at college. And I think those two coaches really just understood that I was trying to end my career on a high note. And so they were just supportive of me as a human and as a person who obviously had goals in skating, but they wanted to make sure that the focus was not, for instance, on my physique and not on, you know, how thin or how toned I looked. And that was something that I didn't necessarily have as much appreciation for in the moment. But afterwards, I was, yeah, I just feel so much gratefulness for their approach to that, because I think that really helped me be able to leave the sport on my own terms
1: yeah I certainly see that in my office on a regular basis i can I can tell there's you know the the parents that respond to an injury and something there when the the parent is the one who's more devastated by the loss of someone competing than the athlete themselves and it's interesting that dynamic and trying to work through that and then the exact opposite of what you talked about where we see families and parents that you know they prioritize and their their biggest thing is hey, it's my child's health first, and yes, the competitions will be there and you know, unfortunately, if there's injuries that prevent them from competing and understanding that and putting that in, in life perspective from everything, that it is still a sport. But, but yeah, I think in the big picture of things, that parental support, I mean, can go a long way. And, and sometimes, unfortunately, parents do get caught up a little bit in the success and the blinders get on and they, they see the success of their child participating in a sport. And then it's, it's hard to kind of refocus a little bit. I mean, no question.
0: Yeah. I mean, I feel like having such a strong support system was so important to me because not only was I achieving things in skating, I was also a high academic achiever and had a lot of internalized intrinsic pressure that I was kind of putting on myself. (laughs) So I felt like if anything, I was my own worst critic. And sometimes my parents like had to reel me back a little bit and say, hey, like you're doing a great job, like you're doing a lot more than most other like 15, 16." 17 year olds are doing. So let's try to keep this in perspective. But they were also just, I think my mom in particular, since she was really there on a day to day basis with me, like would really try to kind of protect me from some of the comments that people were writing online. And, you know, even just kind of, like sifting through the comments or filtering comments that judges were passing on to her that you know she was supposed to pass on to me you know there were so many instances where uh, like even before my first world championships, I had a couple of judges come in and one of them said, well, you know, you have about a week and a half to go, guess you need to drop like 15, 20 pounds before you leave, which at the time, you know, I, <laughs> I just didn't even know what to do with that information. So, you know, sometimes when those comments went to her, she was able to uh, kind of filter that and focus again, just mostly on, on the things that I could control and, you know, really felt passionately about and valued.
1: Yeah. And even, you know, what, 10 years ago, I guess when that would have been going on for you or a little over 10 years ago, just in the perspective of the social media access then compared to now a decade later, boy, I, I don't know how any teenage athlete who's at that level can filter that out at all. I mean, it's just, it's hitting you from all ends, unless you've got some, a parent who's really, truly keeping you isolated from everything else.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I yeah, I really have no idea how some of these younger athletes are handling this and I really understand why so many of them are deciding to kind of limit their exposure to social media or kind of keeping things very professional or like not allowing comments because it just gets to you. And especially, you know, especially in a sport like figure skating or gymnastics or, you know, any other sport where you're competing at an elite level and in a very public presence at such a young age, it's really hard to balance that because you just, you're trying to figure out your identity and, you're a very like malleable person. And so when you have all these people, you don't know, writing all these terrible things about you, of course, that's going to impact how you view yourself and your overall mental health. Like, I mean, it's, it's really unsurprising to me when people say, yeah, I mean, that was definitely a contributing factor to why I developed depression or why I developed anxiety, or, you know, comments people wrote about my body, those were things that I had never even thought of. And that led me to disordered eating. And, you know, and I can certainly think about very specific comments that I received over the years that will never leave me, you know, these will think these are going to be things I remember for the rest of my life. And those were certainly things that I contributed to, you know, my really poor body image and some kind of teetering on disordered eating behaviors and really having an unhealthy relationship with my training and exercise. You know, those were, those were definitely things that stuck with me. And when you're handling that with social media, it's just, I think, magnified even more.
1: So were these types of experience that you had, is that what got you interested now in pursuing a career looking at eating disorders?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it comes from a couple of things. Of course, it comes from kind of my own personal experience in sports and and recognizing how important it is to not only have like a healthy relationship with, uh, with your body and with your eating habits and just generally like with your physique and with your strength. And, you know, I certainly understand the importance of that now even more. But I think it also came from seeing how normalized so many disordered eating behaviors and full-fledged eating disorders were in sports more broadly. And I think this has changed a little bit now, but it's still there. It's still very prominent. I mean, I think about seeing, you know, seeing some of my peers in the training rooms, like wearing garbage bags on top of like three pairs of sweats, trying to, you know, burn off like a 1000 calories in, you know, a brief period of time just to drop weight before an event. And, you know, I think back to kind of these jokes, but not really jokes about how few calories you could eat in a day, or like how many grains of rice would you allow yourself for a meal. And those were like, Kind of cursory comments that were often tossed out, but those were things that I knew were often true and were were things that were really happening. And at the time, you know, again, like I was a young teenager and didn't really understand like the magnitude of that. I, you know, and, and the conversation about mental health was really uh, not a thing at that point. You know, people weren't really talking about what some of the signs and symptoms were of eating disorders. And I think the, you know, the general population of athletes now has a much greater like eye for that and much greater understanding, but it was so taboo at the time when I was competing that it just really had no idea how to wrangle that whatsoever. And it just really stood out to me once I started doing research in college, like, wow, these were things that were happening all the time And these were things that I understood to kind of be the norm. And these were things that I really should have been able to say, hey, this really sounds like you need some help. I would love to see you like, you know, can I help you get some help? Can I, you know... Make sure that your your parents know so that they can help you get referred to the right folks. Like I'm just concerned about you. Those are conversations that I really wish I could have had at that point. But you know, now that's part of the reason why I'm in this field to do more research to get more clinical skills and to help you know help spread that knowledge to the larger public uh, and make sure that we really have open conversations about mental health.
1: We are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will continue our discussion with former Olympic figure skater Rachel Flatt. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great, cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? you want to learn how your business organization or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine connect with us and let's have a conversation you can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com make your podcast soar with the editor core editing podcasts can be ugh, rough everyone knows that you'll spend at least double the time you use creating the podcast when editing it then there's the control freak factor and the gotta get it right the first time. Well, it's time to shove all that out the door and make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. The Editor Core is a talented, experienced team of podcast editors that have edited tens of thousands of hours of podcast content, and they're ready for yours now. Check out EditorCore.com because it's time to make your podcast soar. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. We are back with Rachel Flatt, former Olympic figure skater, and she's been talking to us about her story and some of the challenges she faced during her skating career. we we'll are continue our discussion and learning about her current path to becoming a psychologist. So tell our listeners about the digital mental health tool you've been involved with.
0: Yeah, I'm currently involved in a research study with Recovery Record, which is an eating disorder treatment tool it's been such a blast to work with them. But yeah, essentially what we're doing is we are using a wearable technology to see if we can predict when people are going to engage in disordered eating behaviors. And kind of the goal behind it is really to basically prevent these behaviors from happening altogether. So The goal is to be able to use kind of the algorithms and the modeling that we developed from this study to intervene on both like a group and individual level And say, hey, it looks like you're at risk for engaging in a binge or engaging in some compensatory behaviors at this point. So here's a coping tool that you can use right now since you're high risk. And hopefully this will prevent the behavior from happening altogether. So it's a really different way to kind of treat eating disordered symptoms and disordered eating behaviors more broadly. Instead of treatment relying on 50-minute sessions once a week where you're having to recall your uh, your however many hours are in a week outside of this one hour of therapy. <laughs> it's really proactive and preventive. And we've just finished up recruitment and data collection. So we're going to start data analysis uh, here shortly. So I'm pretty excited about that.
1: Well, great. Yeah, well, we'll be looking forward to that. Any, anything we have as far as other tools for screening or interventions, obviously, are, are more than welcome in the sports medicine world, for sure. So I'm, I'm excited mm-hmm. to see what you guys find out about this.
0: Yeah, me too. I'll keep you posted. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. You know, I'm interested in hearing your perspective about how easy it was, or maybe it wasn't, of making the decision to retire from competitive figure skating. You talked about wanting to go out on top, which I think is probably every athlete's goal, but sometimes hard because you taste the top and then you want to keep staying at the top, maybe to some extent. Talk about the path you took to that decision. And I'd love to know if there were particular people you leaned on, or was this something you actually just came to terms with on your own?
0: Actually, during that 2011 season, I was actually hoping that world championships would be my last. And the goal was to medal and retire and start college. And so I was going to retire at the ripe old age of 18. <laughs> But obviously, things didn't quite work out that way, given my injuries and and just kind of the, the confluence of events that season, But I decided to try and get healthy and rehab my injuries and go for one more year during my freshman year at Stanford. But again, I ended up really pushing my recovery and spent most of the year injured and did okay at nationals, but didn't qualify for another world team. And so I decided, okay, well, this is, you know, I'll give it one more shot. And kind of the same thing happened the following year, I was injured again, ended up taking off the latter half of the season. And at that point, you know, we were one year out from the Olympics. And I was like, I just don't know if this is something that I can do anymore. And so I took several months off and just did some soul searching. I was trying to figure out if I really wanted to be actively involved in skating anymore. And I was also really engaged in a lot of other things with with college clubs and groups and things like that. And I was at the time pre-med, which (laughs) is another story for another time, but just realized like I still really love skating and I still really want to finish my career on my own terms. And so I decided to give it one more shot. So I tried for one more season. I took it very easy. I was training like one to two hours a day, which is kind of in stark contrast to my Olympic season when I was competing and training constantly. I was probably training close to seven or eight hours a day. But yeah, I decided to just take it easy, really listen to my body and my mind and figure out what training load was appropriate and what was acceptable and what my body could handle. And so I ended up taking that season very easy. And I competed at my last nationals in Boston. And I knew going into that event that it was going to be my last one. And so as soon as I finished my final program, I kind of burst into tears because there was so much relief and like gratitude. But there was also like this kind of preemptive feeling of loss and so it was a lot of emotions that had kind of built up over you know several months where i knew nationals would be kind of the end and uh yeah and and it was amazing because my coaches at that point you know right as i was about to get off the ice they turned me around and they said you have to take this moment in you have to remember this because this is the last time you know that this is going to happen and it was such a like sweet and sentimental moment i remember turning around and just like kind of waving to the fans And in a way, I was like waving goodbye to this chapter of my life. So yeah, it was very, I don't know, it was very special. And I feel like that allowed, that experience really allowed me to part from my competitive season of my life on a positive note, even though it wasn't like a perfect performance. It was far from it, but it just felt really great to be able to say, okay, I'm I'm done and I now can move on to other things.
1: So, you know, I'd be curious to see kind of your experience if, at any point, you had a physician who kind of had the same sort of scenario as what I had with one of my patients because I remember this very fondly and and just talking with a Division One collegiate soccer player who came to see me for multiple concussions and she had had multiple concussions throughout her collegiate career. She was wanting to go pre med and she states that. You know, when we got through our visit, I got basically asked her, I said, What what's your ultimate goal here? Do you wanna to continue to play? Um, or or what? Cause you know, obviously you're you're almost done with your career. Do you wanna to continue to play or not? And I said it, you know, it is okay to stop. And she actually paused for a minute. She actually she thanked me for being, I think, the first physician who had ever given her permission to make a decision about whether she wanted to continue to play or not with her multiple injuries. Everybody just assumed with each concussion that she had that once she cleared it, she would be fine. She'd go back to play because she was a she was a scholarship athlete. And they just assumed that's what she just kept wanting to do. But no one really asked her what her perspective was. So I'm curious if you've ever had at any point. Any healthcare professional who's kind of sat down with you with your history of injuries and just saying, hey, you know, it, it is okay to stop?
0: Yeah. I mean, honestly, the first conversation I had related to that was when I was 13. I had, oh gosh, this was with a spine doc. He took a look at my <laughs> my MRI and my x-ray. And this was right after I had gotten uh, my first couple of herniated discs And he had a very, you know, very, very real conversation with me about what some different treatment options were from very invasive surgeries to, you know, just kind of trying to manage this with physical therapy at the time. And, you know, I had pretty severe disc herniations at that point. And, you know, I was 13 trying to make a decision about whether or not I wanted to continue skating for the rest of my career, which you know, (laughs) I think the magnitude of that kind of a conversation didn't really hit me at that point, purely because of my age and kind of lack of experience and, you know, (laughs) all sorts of things. But I, I had that conversation kind of early on in my career. And I think that conversation really set me up to think, okay, well, my career could really end at any point. So I need to make sure that I have myself set up for other career paths that I would feel really excited about taking on at any point. And so I think that was part of the reason why I was really, uh, I was very adamant about being a good student and taking my academics seriously, because I knew that skating wasn't always going to be there and that I had a very real chance that I could have a career ending injury at any point. And so I, I, you know, I don't think a lot of athletes have that mindset sometimes because there is this assumption that you will just continue to compete until your body essentially gives out. And I think, you know, I've seen so many athletes do this recently. I mean, even with Lindsey Vaughn's documentary that came out, that immediately comes to mind because it's like, you know, you see someone who has had this truly exceptional career who is at you know kind of the 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 last stage and you know you can see she's just in so much physical pain and it's just a battle every day and it's like I've been there I know that pain I know exactly what that feels like not quite at that level but <laughs> but I know I've been there and I know those kind of that emotional and physical slog that you're going through and it's just I mean, it's, it's almost an impossible decision to make because at some point you feel like you have so many people's careers or fans, like you know, their perspectives, like there's so many people that you kind of have to account for. And it's, it's, it's just a really difficult decision to make. But at the end of the day, it's like you, you only have this one athletic career, only have this, this one life to do the things you really want. And being able to kind of preserve your body and be able to walk without arthritis by the time you're 40 years old is something, you know, there's something to be said for that.
1: Absolutely. You no, know, as you progressed through your figure your skating career and the stakes became greater, did you have anyone or anything that you turned to in order to keep yourself balanced from a mental health standpoint?
0: Yeah, I mean, I th- I think that's part of the reason why school and academics were so important to me because when I was at school, I couldn't think about skating. I mean, sometimes I did a little bit, but (laughs) it certainly trickled in. But, you know, when I was taking these really intensive classes, I had to focus on what was right in front of me. And it was the same thing when I was at skating. You know, I couldn't necessarily focus on school, although there were times where, you know, going into triple X's, I was thinking about how to conjugate certain French verbs before a test that was happening in an hour. (laughs) So, like, there was certainly some crossover, but I needed other avenues. And I needed other things in my life to really make sure that if I had a bad day at skating, I could do something else that felt just as meaningful, if not more so, and felt like I was, you know, kind of doing things in line with with my values, doing things to set myself up for my future So yeah, I mean, that was that was a huge component to it. Looking back, I didn't have like a huge social life when I was competing. And that's something that I really value now. I wish I had had a little bit more of that when I was competing. But at the same time, like I was, you know, already pretty maxed out on my my schedule at that point. So I was, you know, still going to school dances when I could and still doing things like that. But But yeah, it was just tough to kind of manage it all. But at the end of the day, like I was doing what worked for me and what mentally felt the best was challenging for sure. But I I felt like what I did worked pretty well in the long run and allowed me to walk out of the sport saying, yeah, I was able to walk away with my, you know, (laughs) with my sanity, with my, most of my body parts still working pretty well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I, you know, I feel like I was able to kind of escape sports relatively unscathed all things considered.
1: So what advice would you give to those who are coaching figure skating about supporting the mental health of their young skaters?
0: Uh, That is honestly one of the most important things I think you could ever do is just helping support like the human that is in front of you. One of the things that I think about when I was competing was that this was never a conversation. And it's not to say that I, I think there's this line sometimes where coaches feel Like they have to either be entirely responsible for every single aspect of the athlete, including their mental health, which is like way more than, you know, than I think any coach would ever want or ever need to be responsible for, right? You you wouldn't necessarily want a coach who doesn't have like background in mental health treating, trying to treat an athlete for, you know, their anxiety or their depression or or their eating disorder. And then on the flip side, you have coaches who feel who, who really know that boundary well. And they're like, I'm just not even going to touch it. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm just going to leave that to like the, psych- the, the psychology team. And so <laughs> I think when you have those two ends of the spectrum, so falling somewhere in the middle is really important in that you're still checking in with your athletes about their mental health. Like, hey, you know, how are you doing today? Like, I just want to spend a couple minutes at the beginning of this lesson, just checking in, like, is everything okay? And, you know, and if coaches don't feel equipped to have that conversation, you know, just being able to refer them to the right people who can or having you know, if, if for some reason they're really concerned about like severe weight loss or really a different mood that kind of came on all of a sudden, being able to say, Hey, like I've noticed these changes, I'm worried about you. And I'm going to refer you to this, you know, this therapist or the psychologist, or, you know, please go see your PCP. These are, you know, certainly things that any coach can do. But again, it's just, you have to be mindful of your athlete as a person and they're going to be bringing in whatever else is going on in their life sometimes. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that you don't have to solve the problem, but you just have to be there for support and show them that you care.
1: So how about flipping that to what message would you give to young skaters or maybe even possibly the scenario, you know, you comparing ages here to me, you're still young, Rachel. And how about to younger Rachel, uh, as far as what, what would, advice would you give them for s- supporting their own mental health?
0: I think the first thing that kind of comes to mind is one of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's famous quotes about in a good marriage, it's good to be a little deaf sometimes. And I think the same applies to when you reach, you know, or when you're when you're an athlete, and you have everyone under the sun trying to tell you up from down and trying to provide their own take. And sometimes it is good to not really listen deeply to those comments and take everything with a grain of salt, because at the end of the day, not everything that you hear is going to be helpful. And you have to focus on like what you value and what you feel strongly about whether that is like your mental health, your physical health, you know, your success as a person outside of your sport and like having a happy life outside of sport. So I think being able to kind of tune out (laughs) some of those things, but I think in specifically in relation to mental health, I think one of the things that I often tell people is like, if you are experiencing any sort of mental health concern, like please know that it is not your fault and it is not a choice. These are, you know, illnesses that, A lot of people have, like, you know, various, they have genetic risk for, they have some environmental kind of constraints that might be contributing to the mental health concern that's kind of presenting. But, like, there are so many other factors than you choosing to have a mental health concern. And I think just being able to have a very frank and open discussion about that is, like, such a relief for a lot of people because it's so important that. They know that this is, you know, it's just like any other illness. You can't necessarily control whether it's going to, come on, how severe it will be, the intensity of it, but you can choose kind of how you address it and being able to seek therapy, get on medication as needed, like, being proactive when you feel things are starting to slip a little bit. Those are all things that you can do. And kind of being able to create a really strong support system around you is is essential to that as well.
1: Absolutely. And props to you for quoting the notorious RBG in my podcast. Fantastic.
0: <laughs> oh, she's my favorite. Yep. Love her. God
1: rest her soul.
0: <laughs> yeah. So
1: you had interest in being in medical school and that pathway has changed for you. So what ultimately now do you envision your future career kind of looking like?
0: Ideally, yes, I I well, I decided not to go the MD route because I realized after a lot of soul searching it, it wasn't for me. That was one of those big decisions that I had to make and kind of come to terms with. But yeah, I I, I think at this point I really envision myself kind of going into this like clinical sports mental health space. So doing more of like the clinical sports psychology aspect where there's more of a focus on the true mental health disorders, whether that's eating disorders, anxiety, depression, etc. Obviously, I have a pretty good background at this point, uh, both in terms of my research and clinical work in eating disorders. So I think that will be kind of at the forefront. But I don't know, I, I really see myself kind of in a in a career where I'm really blending the research the clinical aspects and potentially like some of the policy aspects as well i mean i feel like this this space is really starting to grow and so i'm not quite sure what what careers will await once i'm done with grad school and with internship and postdoc but I yeah I really see myself kind of getting into this space where it's balancing kind of the, the clinical aspects and the research and the policy, because I think those are all really intertwined. And for me, it's hard to separate them out. Uh, <laughs> I, I think you have to work kind of collaboratively on every aspect. So I don't know, we'll see. But I, I'm very excited about it regardless. And I just feel Like I've found, I've found my, my path. So I'm, I'm very much at peace with that, which is a pretty cool feeling to have.
1: Absolutely. It is. So as we wrap up, we have a feature we call the Pearl of Podcast. And it's something that's a take-home point you'd like our listeners to know. It could be something you've covered or something you'd like to add as a parting bit of wisdom.
0: Mm. Yeah. So when I was thinking about this, I think one of the most important things that I would like to share is that if you are really involved in sports at any level, the lessons that you learn can be transferred into pretty much every aspect of your life, whether that is <laughs> being able to balance your, you know, your school and your sports schedule to how to be resilient after setbacks to having to really be Accountable and kind of be an empowered and kind of self-advocate. You need to really be a strong person in, in who you are. And I think it takes a ton of guts to participate in any sport at any level. And I think it's just really important for folks to know like any participation any touch that you have with sports those are those are lessons that you can take with you for the rest of your life and yeah just being able to kind of think about what lessons you've learned and the identities that you've built as a part of sport and being able to translate that elsewhere is is really important
1: great stuff Thank you so much, Rachel, for taking the time out of your schedule to speak with us today. It's, it's so beneficial for any of our younger athletes and also the physicians who care for them to hear the stories of athletes who have succeeded at a high level, especially knowing them, knowing that many of them may be dealing with similar issues themselves. We'll continue our series discussing mental health and athletes next week with another episode of the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Be sure to check out our entire podcast library at PediatricSportsMedicinePodcast.com. We truly appreciate your feedback and five-star reviews. Your comments are appreciated and your ratings help us become more visible and gets the word out about our podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast through your favorite podcast streaming platform so you never miss a new episode. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been another episode of the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.